This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Sunday night in New York City, we are watching the roof close over Arthur Ashe Stadium. That's symbolic because we are now at the close of the 2019 U.S. Open. And what a closing day it was right here. I'm Brian Clark. I called the final on U.S. Open Radio. Pleased to be joined by the woman who sat next to me for almost five hours, Sophie Amiak. We spent a lot of time together, and what a final it was. We're going to talk all about it. We'll talk about the entire U.S. Open here on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. But Sophie, Rafael Nadal, he gets his fourth U.S. Open. He gets his 19th major, but it was by no means easy. Epic. That's the only word I can think of. It was uh, by no means easy because, you know, after being up two set to love, you almost thought that, oh, this is going to be it. He's going to finish in three sets. But uh, don't ever underestimate this young guy, 23 years old, Daniel Medvedev. Yeah, seven five six three five seven four six six four for Nadal. And just looking at, it's hard to try to digest this so quickly after the final with what we just saw but when you look at those little moments that made the difference where do you start to think of the moments that made the difference for Nadal tonight well I started to think about how Medvedev just was so gutsy on such important point when he saved you know the match point when he came to the net when he served in volley I mean you look at the guy and say what is I mean how is he so mature to be so aware the awareness that he had to keep this match going but what I will take from it is the mental toughness of Rafael Nadal because that match could have been gone from his hand but he kept at it, he kept believing, and the way that his demeanor was without feeling down on himself by any means when he was pretty much done in three sets almost to love. And, uh, I mean, for me, that is the biggest achievement is the mental toughness. So, so, so tough. One thing that's going to stand out for me with this final is after Nadal won, and it was not easy. In the fifth set, he was up 5-2. He served for the championship, was broken. He had match points on the Medvedev serve, championship points, couldn't convert those. He did serve it out at 6-4. Sitting courtside, waiting for the stage to be set up for the awards ceremony, they played a video on one of the big boards here at Arthur Ashe Stadium, and it's the one across the court from where Nadal was sitting. Of all 19 of his major titles, with a little bit more attention paid to the now four U.S. Open titles, and seeing how visibly emotional he was, I think it just really it sinks in how special he is and how special what he's accomplished over the last 15 years has been. To see somebody who pours his soul into his tennis every single time he's on the court for a practice, for a match, whatever, it makes you, I think, appreciate a little bit more what we've seen from him and then to see how it affects him. And then that also helps you realize, oh, that's how he's able to handle those big moments against Daniil Medvedev in a major final. The intensity of this man is to a degree that I think nobody can understand. And you can actually figure it out when you see what he does to just warm up for a match. And we've been able to see this on site on the U.S. Open now. And he was in the gym preparing to his match the way that his routine goes and the intensity of his look, the way that his eyes are so focused, dialed in, only in the warm-up. And, I mean, you feel it on every single 
point. And his opponents certainly know that on every single point. One more thought on Nadal before we move on to his opponent, Daniil Medvedev. I wonder what this does for the greatest of all time conversation because he will enter 2020 now and he's got more ground to try to gain. Maybe he finishes the year at number one. He's got a very good chance of it right now with the form he's in. Maybe he breaks through and wins in the ATP Finals in London, and then he heads into 2020, one major behind Roger Federer. He's already got more Masters titles than anybody else, and this is another compelling chapter in this argument that we're probably going to be having for the next couple of decades. Yeah, I agree with you, and the, the fact that he's healthy is really what's more dominating for him because if he keeps healthy, he could be playing a lot of years, and he could grab a few because Federer might not play as long with Djokovic hurt. We don't know how physically he's going to be for the end of the year. Uh, and next year coming into the first major in Australia. So I think, you know, that conversation has, has the right to be talked and, and talked a lot. Another conversation that I'm guessing many people are having as they leave Arthur Ashe Stadium. I'm Brian Clark with Sophie Amiak. We just saw Rafael Nadal in an epic beat Daniil Medvedev in a five-set U.S. Open final. They're probably having the conversation that goes something like, wow, that Medvedev's going to be there for a long time. And with what he produced this summer, what he's produced all year, he's the winningest player on tour this year, you would understand why. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was stoic throughout the match. You didn't see one ounce of any anger, uh, any shoulders you know going down the body language was the same uh so humble throughout the whole match and then in his speech at the end i think he regained the whole crowd uh here in new york they're going to remember him a lot more maybe than what nadal achieved tonight just because of his demeanor and that nobody was expecting that he would do so well that's what Mark Knowles, who we did the final with, he said he's going to think of this as the year of Daniil Medvedev. And I, I think agree, a, a totally. lot of I, I do as well. So some really promising signs from this U.S. Open in terms of the future with Daniil Medvedev, 23 years old. Such a valiant effort in his runner-up performance in that five-set final. So that's how the final went. But it's been a thrilling two weeks here in New York City. And Sophie Amiak, we're going to relive all of it coming up right here on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast as we look back over the rest of the tournament. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com. Brian Clark back here on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. It's now time to turn our attention to the rest of the week that was here at the U.S. Open. And Sophie, let's start with the two players who lost in the semifinal round on Friday. Normally you lose at that stage of a major. You're going to be very upset. But I think it might be safe to say that for Matteo Berrettini and Grigor Dimitrov, yes, they were disappointed. But given the runs they put together here, they're probably just really happy with how they performed at this tournament. Well, I think no one is happy to lose. Let's put it this way. So I think there is like a good and a bad, you know, of each of their sentiment at this stage. Because when you get that far, all of a sudden you're happy to be in the quarters, but you get into semis and you're thinking, man, can I go all the way here? Because it looks like if you're in the part of those last ones, you're playing the best tennis of your life but you're also competitive against everybody else. As we saw Dimitrov beating Federer for the first time ever, uh, I think that victory gave him a little bit of wings, but the wings didn't go very far against uh, Medvedev. I mean, that was very impressive what Medvedev has been, well, has been doing all summer long, saying now that he loves the USA. Yeah, and <laughs> the results have certainly showed up there as well. Berrettini, that first set he played against Nadal was one of the best sets of the tournament 
and he had nothing to show for it. 73 minutes, he had two set points, wasn't able to take advantage. That's going to be a hard lesson, you would think, for the young man from Italy about when I've got these top players on the ropes, I have to find a way through because you can't give Rafael Nadal a second chance. No, I mean, Rafael Nadal has all the top, especially the top three. Give him them a second chance, you're done. But, you know, you have to also look at what he did, Berrettini, to get to that stage. And, you know, for him to be in that stage and be able to even push Nadal in that first set, I don't know if you saw the reaction of Nadal when he won that first set. I have never seen him jump that high for that many times except when he was warming up before going on court you know in most of his matches high jump one after the other because that meant so much for him because he knew how big that was he was I had called that match with Mark Knowles he was roaring and we were talking about it the amount of emotion under the closed roof place was going nuts and you could tell what that meant to Nadal then you saw it when he was able to break Berrettini once in the second set he won it more comfortably and then he blew him away in the third set so that put Nadal through at the expense of Berrettini but one other thought about the Italian I think it's fascinating and here we have the breakthrough for Daniil Medvedev but for all the talk about the Sasha Zverev the Stefano Tsitsipas of the world. It's a guy who flew under the radar in Matteo Berrettini. You might call him a late bloomer. Here he was in the last four of a major before Zverev, before Tsitsipas got there. I think there's something to be said for patience with these young young guys. Yeah, I mean, I think that they all believe now because they're seeing the results of other people who are getting closer to taking at least a set here and there or maybe winning a match as Medvedev, you know, beat Federer the week prior to coming here, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, you know that they start thinking in their head, well, if they can do it, well, maybe I also have a chance. And they're starting to think when they get on the court that they have a chance to win. And uh, putting it together for three sets here is, is the, it's the big ask. And you know who else learned that this is a big ask? He knew that already is Roger Federer because it's now been five years since he was in the final here. Ten years and counting since he last won this tournament for the fifth time. Not right physically against Dimitrov, but give Dimitrov full credit for taking advantage. Federer, after his loss, he said that his schedule the rest of the year is going to go to Shanghai. He'll play his home tournament in Basel, then the Paris Masters, and then the ATP Finals, the Nito ATP Finals at the O2 in London. Is this just where Federer is now, where so much is expended in the first part of the year, building around Wimbledon, that it's really tough at this U.S. Open for Roger Federer? Well, I mean, I think the U.S. Open is is tough, but I think, you know, digesting what happened at Wimbledon was, was the toughest. And for him to be able to at least produce some good tennis here, coming through that far, and, you know, the injury, I mean, I think, you know, the back was a problem against Medvedev, but against Dimitrov, sorry, but you, when you saw Dimitrov, the way that the intensity was on the court, I mean, you knew something was going to give. And he played really some great tennis. Uh, I think for Federer right now, you know, we, we count him out so many times and so many times he has proven everybody wrong. Uh, you know, it's almost like where Serena is in in a, in the sense. It's it's what do we what do we think? Do they still have one under their you know belt that they can maybe sneak? And I, I would think it's Wimbledon. I would feel that that's probably the best chance. Which you know he should have had that one this year with that forehand that went wide, the inside out forehand that I can see and see again. And I'm sure for him it's a nightmare right now because I'm sure he's seeing that one. But you have to digest. You have to eliminate. You have to let go. You have to think it's new. And looking at 2020 for him uh, is pretty much the goal to maybe get to a Wimbledon and maybe win one more. You just took my exact question. I was thinking, what are realistic expectations for Federer next year? And I think that makes perfect sense. Try to get deep as he can in Wimbledon, win it. There's the Olympics coming up, so who knows there with what could happen there. He's never won an Olympic uh, singles gold medal 
uh, on the men's side. That could be another feat to try to push towards in Tokyo. Yeah, and the other thing is I think he's going to skip the French, which is going to get keep him fresher to play on the grass, which is important for him, for his body not to ask you know too much. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. And I think after that, might call it a day. <laughs> well, we'll save that for now. We hope it's not soon. But, yeah, the Father Oh, we've time. been so lucky yeah. already to have him for that long. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, you got to give those people a rest. This is a lot. Father time is undefeated. Exactly. Novak Djokovic, you mentioned the French Open. That is the one tournament missing from his double-double of the career Grand Slam, the only major he has not won twice. He's made no secret that he sets up his year targeting the majors. He's finished 2019 now two for four. But he left here, I think, with some questions because he came in here as the heavy favorite. There were questions about his physical state, and we got the unfortunate answer in that match against Stan Wawrinka with the, the shoulder issue where he had to retire. And it just seems like, okay, Djokovic wasn't fully fit when he came in here. He looked a bit irritated in his early matches. Maybe it was the physical is the reason why. Is this just how you chalk it up for 2019 for Djokovic at the majors? Well, I mean, apparently, I mean, there's no other measure right. after this one. So you ha- you're going to have to look at, you know, look back at what he did and why is he getting injured? Why the shoulder? You know, what's going on with his preparation? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's all about, you know, dealing with the most important and peaking at the, at the most important stage of the four majors during the year. And apparently he didn't do so well here in New York, but... You know, it's 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 part of the game. You know, if you stay healthy throughout, and uh, that's how you're going to be, you know, better prepared to win the big ones. And I think that's what's happening. You know, in this one, you know, you see the injury for Djokovic, you see the back injury for Federer. You know, I think you know you can never, you know, not think that Djokovic is going to come back with the tennis that he's been able to produce. It's uh, it's pretty grand. And himself coming back from from injury and being able to regain that number one ranking. I mean, it's it's big. I mean, people just don't realize, you know, what it takes to not only come back but to come back to the same or better level and uh you know we've seen it also on the women's tour with Serena doing so and and uh, and for Djokovic you know I'm I'm not too worried I think he needs to just regroup Brian Clark here with Sophie Amiak on the ATP tennis radio podcast and maybe the match of the tournament as far as drama goes on the men's side a compatriot of yours Gael Monfils in his quarterfinal loss to Matteo Berrettini you uh you had an interesting facial reaction when I said Monfils's name why well, because, you know, as a French player, uh, I look at him and saying, you know, he's such an amazing athlete. He has such a game. He has such a physical game. And uh, it's sad for me that he didn't go any further than that. It's sad for me that he never won a major. But, you know, it, it's what it is. It's what Gael is. He's a showman. And, uh, you know, he's probably more talented than most of them, but not as hard worker, and that's what you get. You know, that's a, a good and a bad combination because uh, obviously you don't win the majors. And against Berrettini, I felt like it was passive in that tiebreak, and you can't do this when you're in the fifth set tiebreak. That said, this year has been different for Gal, where he has looked a bit deeper into tournaments. There's been a lot made of his relationship with Alina Svitolina and maybe some of the positive effects on him. Do you buy that? And do you think there could be room for maybe a little bit more growth as you head into 2020, at least as far as the majors go? I know he's going to be even older. He'll turn 34 next year, so he's not getting younger. But is there still room for a little bit more improvement? 
I think there is always room for improvement. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how long you've played, and doesn't matter what work you're doing. It's we all in the same, you know, in the same pool here. And if if we want to improve, we just have to learn from our mistakes. We just have to look above and beyond. We have to talk to better players who are doing, you know, better on the tour. And I think his relationship has definitely helped him. There is no doubt. I mean, Svitolina is the opposite, the young and yin. I mean, she's just the hardest worker on the tour. Uh, very and sometimes way too much, you know, commitment in the sense that she needs to relax a little bit so I, I think he's you know he's being around for her also has helped her to find that little balance and a little bit more relaxed and for him it's all about you know putting more hours more time more focus I think he showed it here he was close to getting past Berrettini but I think if you know it if anything one is kind of like mentality is rubbing on the other one and you know I think it's great it's all the different stories that unfolded over these Two weeks here at the U.S. Open. Another story that has begun to unfold this summer, and it's not a good one, is the yips for Alexander Zverev. He had 20 double faults in his loss at Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago, 17 when he was beaten by Diego Schwartzman. If you look at the two players physically, you would think there's no way Zverev should lose to Schwartzman. Schwartzman had a great tournament here. He got to the quarterfinals. He outplayed Zverev. But how concerned are you by seeing Sasha struggle so visibly with these serves? I think he's completely worn out mentally. He's losing confidence. I think they have to look at what's going on in the fact that his serve is cracking down that much. Uh, technically and mentally, what is he thinking? What is mindset going through? And you have to just talk and try to evaluate because I think he's totally burned out. And burnouts, you know, at that age, it's, it's way too young. But I have no doubt he's going to rebound. The, the kid is so talented as well. He's a hard worker. I think he needs to. He also has a lot of personal issues that it's not helpful for right. him. Okay. And, uh, and it's difficult when you look outside of the tennis court and you have so many problems. He had problems with his coaching. He has problems with, I think, one of his agents. His agency. There was a... Yeah. So that's a lot of things that is 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 not a good thing when you come on the court and you have to have a clear mind to perform it's already hard enough so if you have all this stuff outside i think it's good that he kind of take takes a little step back and then realize okay let's think about how i'm going to get back into this do i love being there do i enjoy no why and just you know make make these decisions and then i'm sure he's he's going to bounce back and how much of that, you bring up an interesting point because you hear more players working with sports psychologists and therapists, and I'm not sure if Sasha does. How much of that is something he's got to do by himself or, as you say, do with his team around him just to take that look in the mirror? Well, I think it's just like when you learn how to play tennis. You know, you have to have people, you know, helping you out to explain to you how you hit a forehand and a backhand. And I think it's the same for your mind and for to realize what is stopping you, what is making you feel this way or that way. I mean, I would go to a, a professional in, in that discipline, you know, to, to find out what are my feelings? Why? Why is that? Putting you on the spot here, do you have one or two highlights from the men's side that really just jump out at you, something you really enjoyed seeing over the last couple of weeks? Number one highlight was uh, the down-the-line forehand that uh, a certain Nadal hit on 40-all, a point away for match points outside the post. Against Chilich. Against Chilich. Yeah. To me, and, and, and you know what? It's not only that, it's just to see the face of Chilich when that ball came in the court. I mean, Chilich was like, huh? Yeah. What? I mean, he had done everything in that point. 
And I mean, that was the only thing that could kill the point for him. But I mean, his face is priceless. And that tells the whole story about what, the, what, what that was about that shot. So for me, it's that and Schwartzman. I have to love Schwartzman, what he did against. I mean, the fact that he came back twice in two sets from being down, I think, 4-1 and 5-1 and 4-love against Nadal. And I mean, I love this little guy because to be able to sustain this kind of intensity at that height and be competitive about, you know, against guys that are so much taller and have so much more. I love that guy, the tenacity. And uh, it felt like, you know, Del Potro was on the court that day because of all the uh, atmosphere and the fans and everybody singing and the ole, ole. You got to love it. Yeah, that was uh, some fantastic atmosphere for Diego Schwartzman in that in that loss to Nadal. One more. Yes. Yesterday, final, Andrescu against Serena. I have never seen the crowd so involved, so loud, loud since Jimmy Connors played that night when he was like pointing to everybody and we've seen that image when he wins that point and he does his, you know, his dance with yeah. his racket and then points to the public and the fans, you, you, you. I've never seen this and that loud, never. That was 1991 for Jimmy Connors. That's almost 30 years ago. Well, and that's what, and this stadium is much bigger, Arthur Ashe, than the old Armstrong next door. That's my next point. You work a lot in the WTA Tour. You're a former professional yourself. You're a quarterfinalist at the Australian Open. You are in the women's game week in and week out. How impressed are you with what Bianca Andreescu did here to win this U.S. Open? Well, the impressive thing is really the way to kind of put everything down for me is what exactly Serena said about her. She's an old soul. At 19 years old, she's so mature. She feels like she's at least 25-year-old woman. She's reacting to what's thrown at her, including the 23,000 people that were pretty much against her yesterday in the final against Serena. And she was able to deal with this. Uh, you would have thought that after having a match point, took 35 minutes for her next match point, she was going to be probably pushed to a third set. That didn't happen. That's telling the quality of the mental toughness of Andrea uh, sorry, Bianca Andreescu. And uh, what I love is the game. It's the variety. It's uh, it's uh, finding out that she can slice, she can drop shot, she can hit forehands like mag two, she can come to the net, she has a great volley, serve. The serve was fantastic. And she really neutralized the serve of, of Serena yesterday by returning such a high percentage of the serve back in the court. Serves that maybe against other players would have been aces. And... Uh, what really bothered me is to see Serena not going with a plan B. Serena, I think her ego and her pride was so touched by the fact that her serve was not um, as good against her that she, instead of serving to the body and go maybe with a little bit less pace but right at her, she actually went for more pace and trying to be more angled to ace her. And by that token, she took more risk and couldn't even put it in the box. And I think that was the biggest mistakes right there. So that is back to the drawing board for Serena Bianca Andreescu, the U.S. Open women's singles champion. We also want to tip our cap to the doubles champions on the men's side. Top seed, a pair of Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah follow up their Wimbledon title as they win the crown there. And we just crowned the women's doubles champions. Ashley Barty falls short in her title defense as Arena Sabalenka and Elise Mertens beat Barty and Victoria Azarenka. So, Sophie, 
Thanks very much. It's been an absolute blast here on U.S. Open Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. And we love having you on the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. But that's not quite it for us here on this week's podcast. Injuries and physical fitness and sometimes grueling conditions have been a theme throughout this fortnight here in New York. I managed to spend some time earlier in the week with Kevin Anderson's coach, Brad Stein. He's been doing some commentary work on U.S. Open Radio. And that's because Anderson missed the tournament this year through injury. So we started with how Stein's charge is currently doing. Yeah, unfortunately, Kevin was unable to participate this year with due to an injury. We've been uh, we've been struggling all year long, starting first half of the year with an elbow injury, and then through the summer he's had an issue with his right knee. And uh, we tried to get ready the week before the tournament, and it just became obvious that the smarter decision to make was to was to have him not play. Actually, how difficult is it to finally make that real hard call that he's not going to play? Yeah, you know, it's I think it's harder for the players than it is for a coach or the physios. You know, I mean, they just they want to compete. Kevin's a Kevin's a competitor. He loves competing and he wanted to be in the tournament and be able to participate here. So, you know, I was the one that actually was kind of pushing in the direction of saying, like, you know, there, it just, just doesn't make any sense to stay and try and play. And and uh, at this point in Kevin's career, you know, his objectives are to try and go deep in the tournament and to do some damage. And, you know, we felt he could have probably gotten through maybe a match. But um, but beyond that, it wasn't really going to be able to to do give him the opportunity to play his best tennis. You've coached at all phases of the game, college, juniors. You've worked with pros. You've won Grand Slams with Jim Currier. You've worked with other top ten players. You've been to the Wimbledon final with Kevin. Is there a difference at, when it's a player at Kevin's, the point in his career where he's in his mid-30s and you know the opportunities are fewer than when it's somebody who's a bit younger and maybe there's a little bit more time in front of them? First of all, you should be my publicity agent, Brian, that uh, litany of, of things that I've been lucky enough to accomplish. But, um, yeah, it's, it's different. It definitely changes from, you know, phases of your career. And that was one of the things that we discussed with Kevin was that at this point in his career, it just didn't make any sense for him to try and push through to play a match or two. You know, he even mentioned the fact that five years ago or six years ago where he was ranked, you know, more around 60 in the world or 70 in the world, that getting through one match, both points and financially, would would have been something that would have been significant to him. But at this point in his career, it doesn't really make any difference to try and do that. And the, the possibility of having something occur that would keep him out longer just didn't make any sense. Going big picture now, you've done all of those things over a longer period of time. You've been around the game for a while as I continue to uh, toot your horn here. Do you see a point where things are changing with the way injuries are handled or diagnosed and treated just from what it was when you were first starting to work on tour in the early 90s, late 80s, and to where they are now? Um, I, I think one of the biggest changes we've seen on the tour is actually just the advent of physios traveling with players. I think that I was early on towards the, towards the first portion of where players started traveling on a consistent basis almost up and down through the top 100 with coaches. You started seeing everybody was traveling with a coach. Now we've come to the phase where everybody's traveling with a physio. And so I think because of that, people are taking better care of themselves in general. Uh, Pre-match workouts, post-match uh, work on your body after you've been on the court is just getting more and more and more consistent. So in some ways, that's one of the reasons I think that we see guys like Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, so many players now uh, being able to play later into their career. Same on the women's tour. Uh, people are more motivated to continue to play as the 
the prize money continues to rise in the game. And so uh, as that prize money also rises, it gives people the ability to, to hire more people on their teams. And physios have been the thing that's really been the number one priority for most people. You say the prize money has a lot to do with that. You talk about the players at the top end of the game, but how far down, let's say, in the top 100 are you seeing players able to travel and afford to travel with a physio? Yeah, I think it's become a priority for everybody. And so we see guys, you know, I know a number of the, the you know, American players that aren't quite as highly ranked, uh, and they'll split a physio. You know, so you'll get two or three guys that'll hire a physio, and that makes it advantageous for the physio to be on the road doing it with them and cuts their costs a little bit. Um, you know, the top guys are hiring their own physio that they're traveling with full-time, just one physio that's dedicated to what they're doing. But I think you see pretty far down now where guys are finding a way to, to be able to take advantage of having a physio with them. Everybody's different, but with these physios, how much of it is treating what's going on and how much is it being proactive about, okay, let's do this instead of that to maybe avoid injury and stay a bit fresher? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a huge balance there, actually. Kevin's a great example of that. Kevin started with a new physio last year in uh, kind of mid-year at the grass court season. Uh, his previous physio actually was going back to school to do some other stuff and so Kevin started with a new physio who came in and had a slightly different philosophy and one of his big takes was to try and be very proactive with some historic uh, historical kind of injuries that Kevin had been dealing with, some kind of nagging things that had been going on with him. And he really take, took an approach where getting into the gym, working on those kind of things was able to kind of alleviate some of those issues that he had had kind of as a long-term issue. And then anything that crops up based on, you know, individual matches and playing, he's obviously working on those post-match. Now, does that begin by the two of them sitting down and having like a long conversation about the history or is it some maybe like an actual exam? How does the physio determine the course of action to take? Yeah, I think it's a combination of those things. I mean, obviously, when you start with a physio, you want to give them a good history of your background and issues that you've had, any problems that you've had. Kevin's had a litany of issues over the course of his career, obviously, as a little bit older player and also as a guy six foot eight. Uh, he's had he's had left knee issues, now a right knee issue. He's had, uh, he's had some problems with his elbow in the past. He's had a hip issue. Uh, he had previously last year, he had kind of a reoccurring uh, muscle issue in like a high hamstring area. That was one of the things that the physio was able to be really proactive with and kind of alleviate through some weight training and some other stuff trying to target that area. So, you know, every player is going to be a little bit different given their history, but that's one of the first things you do for sure is sit down and discuss your history and the issues that you've had over the course of your career. Brian Clark here with Brad Stein, the coach of Kevin Anderson. And where do you come into that conversation where you talk to the physio and the player about, okay, this is what we're going to do in terms of practice and workouts to avoid some of these issues and stay sharper? Yeah, I mean, there's there's discussions that go on, but honestly, that's, um, that's more the physio's, you know, area of expertise so I do happen to have a degree in kinesiology so I have a little bit of a background in some of that stuff so I think I'm I'm at least relatively knowledgeable to have a discussion with the physio and with Kevin Kevin you know often asks my opinion uh, about what he thinks is the best course of action in relationship to something but that often comes after the physios made an assessment of of what the situation is so you know, my job is to coach tennis and make him play the best tennis that he can play physio's job is to keep him prepared so that i can do my job so we all kind of work hand in hand there's a little bit of a symbiotic relationship there with everyone we're at the point in the season now here 
about the three-quarter mark, obviously the last Grand Slam of the year here at the U.S. Open, where those aches and pains, they are certainly popping up with players. Are you seeing a real difference now in the way players go about training and matches and scheduling just to try to avoid that, or are they maybe not doing enough of that? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And, and again, I think it, it varies a lot based on ranking level and where you are in your career. Um, I think, you know, the top guys, If you know, obviously the top guys, we see it all the time. They play the softest schedules throughout the year. They play the least number of events. Soft is maybe a bad word. They're playing all the bigger events and the, the tougher events, but but they're, they're playing the least number of events throughout the year. The guys that are ranked lower, uh, you know, are kind of chasing points, especially if you're just outside the top 100, looking to get into the Grand Slams, trying to make sure that you have a chance that, you know, I mean, if you can qualify for the main draws of the main slam, uh, Grand Slams, it's enormous. And so those players are kind of chasing points, feeling like they have to play an extra event or an extra tournament here. And those are the guys that you see that are playing, you know, a ton of events through the year. And then also just the training that guys are doing now uh, is... I think across the board a little bit heavier, a little bit longer, and I would, I would uh, recommend to guys that they actually look at trying to create a scenario where they're looking at quality over quantity more often in their training. Um, oftentimes the, the, the kind of normal situation to create in a training program is to train twice a day, and uh, I think there's, I think there's a, a, that's where you see often where guys start getting injured when there's overtraining that occurs. So trying to trying to limit a little bit, you know, while you're still being able to do the things that you want to do and progress in your game, I think is very important. Is this on-court training? Is it stuff in the gym? Is it a combination of everything? Combination of everything. I mean, you see, especially the younger players who are really pushing hard, you know, they're oftentimes practicing twice a day and then getting to the gym after that also. And I think with the, uh, with the way the game is played now. the the uh, the physicality of the game, uh, also the materials that you're they're using. Um, we're seeing a lot more. Uh, tennis is basically a repetition sport, and we see repetition injuries. And so, limiting the number of repetitions that you feel like you have to do, uh, I think, is a good thing a lot of the time. So sometimes m less is more. You mentioned you have a degree in kinesiology, so you have experience in this, and you've been around the game for a while. Are there things that you see done now that you couldn't have imagined watching 20, 30 years ago in terms of training? Yes. <laughs> the simple answer to that is yes. There's, uh, I mean, again, I think the, the rackets, the strings, the materials, the way people move on the court, um, I think some of the stuff has been good. I think some of the stuff has been detrimental physically. You know, I mean, we see players... Uh, just fighting and working so hard to try and hold their balance on their outside leg, for example, when they go to wide forehands. And we've seen an increase over the last 15 or 20 years probably with, with hip injuries, and I think that's a big relationship to that. I think if you look at a little bit more fluid movement, which we see more often from Roger or some of the other players, that um, that's one of the reasons you see more limited injuries from those type of players. But, but yeah, the, the training, I think especially movement, the way players move the balls nowadays, sometimes it's not the most classic fundamental tennis that you would have taught 25 or 30 years ago. And, um, and I think that has led to some injuries. But on the flip side of that equation, are there things that maybe you did 25, 30 years ago that you look back on and say, I can't believe I did that in terms of training? Yeah, course. you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is just the preparation for practice or matches. You know, guys in the old days, 
back in the 1990s, you know, the olden days. Um, I mean, a lot of times we just walk out to the court and, and jog around the court two or three times and start hitting balls. Uh, now guys are spending half an hour, 40 minutes, you know, doing a full warm-up, warming up every aspect of their body, every joint, every muscle. And, um, and, and sometimes I feel like that's almost a little bit overdone. But, uh, but, you know, in the past, it was, you know, a lot, of guy, a lot of times guys wouldn't even warm up. You'd walk out to the court and just grab the balls and start hitting balls. We also now see more attention probably to diet than we ever did back in those ancient days of the 1990s. Yeah, that's another aspect. I mean, I think that uh, just everyone, everyone's trying to fine-tune and find the, the smallest, littlest edge that they can, and diet's just another aspect to that for sure. How much of this, as we begin to wrap up here with Brad Stein, is it like a copycat thing where everybody notices whatever everybody else is doing and then alters it to try to find that same success and replicate that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely part of it here at the tour level that occurs, and then it trickles down and you see, you know, we, we never saw coaches teaching a swing like Rafa would hit where his follow-through necessarily goes over his head. Um, now you, th there was a period where you saw coaches actually teaching that, which for me was fundamentally not the way you would want to teach someone to play, but we see success on the tour, and it definitely creates this copycat version where and, and again it goes all the way it goes through the tour it goes all the way down to teaching pros to juniors who want to play and look the way they see the stars of the game playing one more thing you bring up an interesting point with nadal because so often you hear have you ever seen nadal practice just his warm-up before a match is so intense is the same principle in effect there where people will say oh he practices so hard i have to do the same thing but he is rafael nadal and he's got those genetic gifts yeah, that's a, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, I think when you take the big three, there's a, there, there's a great cross-section that you can look at there because you watch Rafa come out and practice and the intensity level on every single ball is just off the charts. You watch Roger come out and practice and he's pretty relaxed, almost the opposite end of the spectrum in a lot of ways. There's a focus and there's an intensity there mentally, but the physical aspects of it just aren't quite at the same level. And then I think Novak fits right in the middle between those two guys. And uh, so, you, you know, you look, and I see, I think you see that across the board with different players. Kevin ten, tends to be more in that direction of Rafa. Uh, you get other guys that are, you know, taking Nick Kyrgios. I mean, he makes, he makes Roger look like he is Rafa in comparison to his level of intensity and, you know, commitment and, and relaxation on the court. So finally, before we let you go, just You've been around the game for a long time, as we've said. You've done a lot of really cool things. What's it like now to be just almost coming full circle where you're back with a top player in Kevin Anderson? I know right now dealing with the injury, but just for your tennis life to accomplish and see everything you've done, what's that been like for you? I mean, last year was a fantastic experience, amazing ride for me. It was really, really enjoyable to be back in that uh, mix and the level of competition that I was getting to see again on a regular basis after being out of that for a little while. I spent four years with the USTA uh, working with players that were trying to crack into the top 100, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. But, um, but there's a different experience when you're with a top player and he's having the kind of success that Kevin was having last year, and, and, and also... There's a great sense of satisfaction in helping someone who's been out here as long as Kevin was to actually push through a level and win a few more tournaments. When I started on board with Kevin, he had won three titles in his career, had never won anything outside of a 250. And last year, he won three titles in one year and uh, won a 500 for the first time, made the finals of Wimbledon and got to his, high, his career high ranking of number five. And so... To be associated with that and part of that and feel like you're having an effect on his ability to accomplish that was an amazing experience. Brad, it's been an amazing experience to have you with us on U.S. Open Radio and TV here throughout the week. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it.
My thanks to Brad Stein and this week's guest, Sophie Amiak. So that's it for the 2019 U.S. Open, but that is far from it on ATP Tennis Radio. As well as the weekly podcast, we've also got a number of live events still to bring you this year, starting with the Rolex Shanghai Masters next month. That will be followed by the Erstebank Open in Vienna and the Swiss Indoors Basel, those events leading into the Rolex Paris Masters. Then we're in Milan for the next-gen finals, and that's followed, of course, by the season-ending ATP finals at London's O2 Arena. So plenty of live commentary to come and plenty more podcasts to follow. I'm Brian Clark, and you've been listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review. 